0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, reticular macular disease.
1: We're seeing upwards of 90% uh, association of uh, reticular macular disease with geographic atrophy. First this.
0: As Seen From Here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Age-related macular degeneration is a multifarious pathology, if indeed it is a single pathology at all. The type and distribution of drusen can, on occasion, lend prognostic clues if we clinicians are attentive enough to see the patterns. Such is the case with reticular pseudodrusen and reticular macular disease. Today's guest, Ted Smith, recently published a prospective study of reticular macular disease, and I'm delighted to have him as my guest today. This interview was lengthy and will be divided into two podcasts. Today, we'll hear part one. What are reticular pseudodrusen, and how do they differ from hard drusen or cuticular drusen?
1: The classic hard and or soft drusen are deposits under the pigment epithelium, which we see clinically and on histology, and they accumulate as the primary hallmarks of early age-related macular degeneration, mostly in the central macula. Uh, Reticular pseudodrusen, or as we call them, reticular macular disease, uh, are best seen in the outer macula, and they are not drusen-like deposits at all, as far as we can understand. There's controversy about them, but we think they're vascular in origin, in particular, we think there are specifically signs of the capillary insufficiency.
0: Prior to your study, what was known about the relation of reticular pseudodrusin to AMD progression? A- a- and is this evidence solely epidemiological?
1: So, so far, um, what was known was um, definitely uh, strong epidemiological evidence. Uh, the strongest evidence was the review done uh, in the Wisconsin study by Ron Klein, I think it was published in the AJO in about two thousand eight, and showed that the incidence of progression to advanced AMD, the wet or the dry form, was essentially double in the presence of particular pseudodrusen, opposed to the case where they were not present, even when there were these known risk factors of large soft drusen and pigmentary abnormalities. And other studies going back to the uh, mid 90s have also demonstrated uh, a strong association uh, with with advanced AMD. It just hasn't been pursued very much until the last few years, primarily perhaps because they're hard to see on color uh, photography and they're best seen uh, on on scanning laser ophthalmoscopy, like autofluorescence or infrared.
0: What constitutes reticular macular disease, and, and what are the diagnostic criteria?
1: Okay, so the, the way we define that is uh, characteristic appearances on scanning laser ophthalmoscopy is the most definitive. So if you look at autofluorescence images or infrared images, you'll see clusters of either hypofluorescent or hyporeflective lesions that form a compact uh, pattern usually in the most likely the superior macula with the well-defined margins um, and uh, the lesions are fairly uniform in size and um, they're again distinctly hypo-autofluorescent on autofluorescence imaging hypo on infrared imaging and once you've seen a pattern uh, you know, on one of these scans you really, you really can't mistake it for anything else it's not the pattern you see with ordinary drusen or, or anything else. So that's our definition. It's also uh, characteristic patterns you also see on ICG. Basically the same thing, uh, uh, compact grouping of hypo uh, fluorescent lesions, which indicate to us choreocapularis insufficiency. And they're seen in usually in the mid to late phases of the ICG.
0: There seem to be a number of names for this condition. What are they, and are there any real distinctions between them?
1: Yeah, well, they're all talking about, and I think we're all talking about the same disease that people have chosen to name them uh, historically, going way back, and then more recently uh, with differing names. So when they were first uh, noticed uh, back in the mid-'90s by the French, Coscos uh, and Subran, they called them reticular pseudodrusen. Uh, they didn't quite know how to describe them except that they were easily seen in many cases, in blue light illumination. And they thought they looked like drusen, but they weren't convinced that they were actually drusen. And um, so that's their appearance on color photography or uh, red-free photography is uh, an interlacing network network of pale, slightly yellow uh, interlacing structures, 100 to 200 microns in diameter, that tend to fill again a very specific area, usually in the superior macula. It extends temporally, it extends uh, nasal to the disc. Um, but um, that was the, that was the extent of the descriptive knowledge until we got into the 2005 era with with SLO. When um, we looked at them with autofluorescence and infrared, and noticed that they had a very specific pattern on SLO imaging, that particular pattern that I described before, and so. We chose to call them in our paper on this. We chose to call them reticular macular disease because pseudo did not seem to be an appropriate topic anymore. We, there was evidence that it could be, for example, from the a vascular origin. So getting the name drusen out of there seemed like the thing to do. But we're talking. But whatever the disease is, we're all talking about the same thing. Um, there's also literature out there that uh, in which they're referred to as. Uh, subretinal drusenoid deposits, and um, that's coming from a, a group that uh, believes that they are actually different than what we think. They're. They think they're actually deposits of some kind of material underneath the retina, between the retina and the RPE, as opposed to the ordinary drusen, which are underneath the uh, um, and underneath the RPE. And we don't think it's we don't think it's that at all. So there's controversy about that. But we're all talking about the same disease. I think the pathology just is in question. There was one eye that was studied way back in 1995 that showed signs of a pathology in the um, uh, interchloroid, and that was the only eye that was was published up until very, very recently. Uh, However, recently, um, Rick Spade and colleagues have um, published a few eyes which they say were uh, reticular pseudodrusin, and which, um, however, didn't carry a, uh, a clinical diagnosis of RPD, so that's kind of, a, it's kind of a strange conclusion, and they claim to see in those eyes subretinal deposits. On the other hand, there are authorities in the field, like Greg Heyman. who he says their findings are simply a post-mortem artifact, and he recently reviewed uh, 2,700 consecutive uh, donor eyes, and he has the largest collection in the world, and he uh, found no evidence for subretinal deposits in reticular pseudodrusen. So it looks like they're pretty far off the mark.
0: Ted, how common is this condition?
1: Okay, very good question. With better imaging and looking more carefully, the incidence sort of grows uh, basically yearly. So if you look at the older literature, you'll see figures like a few percent, uh, even amongst the AMD population, um, maybe maybe 8% among the early AMDs. Um, but what we're starting to recognize now is if you look at the advanced uh, AMDs, for example, geographic atrophy, and you look carefully with SLO uh, imaging again, we're seeing upwards of 90% uh, association of uh, reticular macular disease with geographic atrophy, particularly the multilobular form. And there's a paper recently out by Frank Holtz and his group which um, – found also a very high rate. Um, they would initially thought the rate was going to be sort of more in the 15% range, and then their latest publication shows over 60%. So the better you look and the more you look with the better imaging techniques, the more we're seeing it.
0: What question did your study seek to answer?
1: Okay, so we looked specifically at the prospective data which was available from that Bausch and Lohm study, the NAT2 study, and um, because although there's been epidemiologic evidence that they are associated with uh, advanced disease, they haven't been studied carefully in a prospective manner. And so this was an ideal set of patients to look at because the entire group had uh, advanced AMD in one eye and had large soft drusen in the other so that the fellow eye was the study eye and was a very high-risk eye by, by any criteria. And so they were being given uh, the omega-3 fatty acids you know, or placebo uh, in a randomized way. And what we looked at was um, we also looked at these study eyes with regard to whether they did or did not have particular pseudodrusen um, by the imaging that was available. And what we found out was that the, very similar to what had been noted in the previous epidemiolo- epidemiologic studies, that the rate of conversion at the three-year point uh, the fellow eyes that had uh, reticular disease was basically double that of the uh, uh, eyes that did not. So and that's take, it's, many of them went to choroidal neovascularization. A smaller subset went on to uh, GA, but the, the, the difference was highly statistically significant because there are almost 300 patients in the study. It was even larger when you looked at the female patients. The discrepancy was even larger.
0: You use data from the nutritional AMD treatment study mm-hmm. phase two,
1: mm-hmm. right? Uh, w-
0: briefly, what what is NAT two?
1: Okay, so that was the um, that was actually a trial. I think it was sponsored by Bausch and alone, where they were looking to see if there was efficacy of uh, a proprietary formulation of an omega three fatty acid given given orally to see if it. Uh, had an effect on the rate of transition uh, to advanced disease in these high-risk fellow eyes, or if it had an effect on the development or uh, resorption of large soft drusen. And the, the latest word that I have understood from from the investigation of that study, it did not have any significant effect on either one of those. It Seems to be more specifically tied to arms too. So it may actually be a an, an actually sort of a phenotype associated with arms too, which is interesting.
0: This is the end of the first part of my interview with Ted Smith. We'll pick up where we left off next time. Theodore Smith is professor of clinical ophthalmology at the Columbia Harkness Eye Institute of Columbia University in New York, New York. His paper, A Prospective Study of Reticular Macular Disease, appears in the August 2011 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Smith or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.